Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Sarah Churchill, Duchess of Marlborough, was as glamorous as she was controversial. Politically influential and independently powerful, she was an intimate and then a blackmailer of Queen Anne. Her character was vividly brought to life in the film The Favourite by Rachel Weisz, playing opposite Olivia Colman as Queen Anne. Dearest Queen, you are mad, giving me a palace. It is a monstrous extravagance, Mrs Morley, we are at war. We won! Oh, it is not over. We must continue. Oh! Oh, I did not know that. The Queen is an extraordinary person. They were all staring, weren't they? I can tell even if I can't see, and I heard the word fat. Fat. Anne. And ugly. No one but me would dare, and I did not. She's been stalked by tragedy. Everyone leaves me. Dies. But who was the real Sarah Churchill? Did the film The Favourite do her and Queen Anne justice? In this edition of Historical Fiction, Alice Roberts talks to Ophelia Field, whose 2002 biography of Sarah Churchill, also titled The Favourite, has recently been updated and republished in paperback. This is Historical Fiction. Ophelia Field, it's great to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. You have written a very scholarly, non-fiction biography of Sarah Churchill. So first of all, who was she and why were you drawn to write about her? I was drawn to her actually because of contemporary women that she reminded me of. So I felt like I'd known several characters like her who had sort of exceptional abilities, but also quite exceptional amounts of pride and who were pioneers in their fields, but also fairly autocratic as sort of managers and so on. So she was a strong female type that that I recognised. And that was why I was interested in writing her biography. She lived from 1660 to 1744, so a very long 84 year life. And she had several different sort of incarnations in that lifetime. But of course, the one that's best known is the period of time where she was the best friend, some say lover or love at least, of Queen Anne. So that's so interesting that you saw different modern characters in her, all people that you know. What kind of characters were they, kind of Deborah Meaden types, or are they Theresa May politician types, or celebrity <laughs> types? I mean, I think if Sarah were alive these days, she'd be the CEO of some massive company or something. But the ones that I had met who reminded me of her were, for example, I worked in the sort of refugee and human rights field for a while, and there was a woman who died in 2018 called Barbara Harold Bond, who was a great pioneer basically of standing up for refugee rights and really changed the way the world deals with refugee camps and everything so she did amazing work but every single person who ever worked with her has like a sort of list of 20 anecdotes about how she kind of (laughs) you know what I mean she's one of those people so you know it's just you know doing things for the right reasons but not necessarily 
in ways that <laughs> were <laughs> always incredibly sensitive and not always womanly. Always, you know, it's always that thing of whether people would have had all the same stories had that been a man or not? And that was one of the questions I had going into writing Sarah's life, thinking all the time about that issue of her gender and how she was judged because of it. What was it that she was actually doing? What was her role? She was best friends with Queen Anne, but she was also responsible for some quite big political decision-making. Sarah's life is really a tragedy in that she wanted to make those decisions. Her problem was that she wasn't given the space to do that because she was a woman. So she was Anne's companion when Anne was a princess and she had stood up for Anne in a variety of situations, argued for her to have an income under William and Mary when they were on the throne and defended Anne and basically embroiled herself in doing so in party politics and obviously just had a real knack for party politics and so started to really get into it and then she was also just as importantly as her relationship with Anne was her relationship with her husband John Churchill who later became the first Duke of Marlborough and with their other friend Sidney Godolphin who became Anne's treasurer and because both of these very competent and important ministers actually trusted and valued Sarah's advice and judgment they involved her in all their discussions so it was really in discussion with them more than anything that she got a taste for politics and then the problem was that when Anne came to the throne Sarah expected that she would indeed be able to really influence decisions and be one of Anne's political advisors but instead Anne really just wanted her to advise on her actual job in the royal household of things like how Anne dressed and things of that level. And those things had political meaning, but they didn't give Sarah the scope for, you know, influence decision-making that she expected she would have. And everyone else around her expected she would have as well. So I understand that there were quite a lot of satirical prints at this time. What did they make of Sarah? Sarah herself was probably one of the most continuously libeled English women of her generation. I mean, she was really one of the first women certainly who had got as much attention from the press. The press had just been sort of released from censorship not long before it was flourishing at this time, the first newspapers rolling out and so on. And yeah, right from the beginning, even in the very early days, there were all these satires and slanders that were about linking her mother, it was sort of against her and her mother, suggesting that her mother was some kind of a witch or some kind of a pimp or procurus or something. They were sort of trying to express something about the anxiety of the Marlborough's vast social rise. And then when Queen Anne comes to the throne in 1702, there's a bunch of ballads and things that come out about the Marlborough's controlling Anne and ransacking her palaces and her parks and taking all her money and so on. There's one, interestingly, a woman called Mrs Manley, Mrs Della Rivia Manley, who was a satirist, a Tory satirist, who was absolutely obsessed with Sarah. And her sort of best-selling satires really always featured Sarah. The first one in 1705 called The Secret History of Queen Zara was all about Sarah. And then there were a number of others that also put Sarah as a central character and really vilified her. It's a sort of a strange mix because Mrs Manley is attacking her. And at the same time, you can tell from this woman who is trying to also express herself through print, that's Mrs Manley, she also somehow, you can sense that she also sort of admires Sarah at the same time. She says at one point, if Sarah had been a man, she had been without fault, which is spot on, really. <laughs> 
let's just look at one of the most obvious questions, perhaps, about Sarah and Anne, was that they were two of the most important people in the country, and they were women. So how important was that? Was it a help or a hindrance? The thing is, when Anne came to the throne, it was a shock for the patriarchy, basically, because although they just had William and Mary, Anne's sister had modelled a very different style of queenship, where she'd been very much sort of subservient to her husband, second to him, and the shock of having a regnant queen, even though there had been, obviously, Elizabeth I before and so on, there was a lot of anxiety about female rule, but they couldn't really express that because you don't say that directly. The future, also at that point, at the beginning of Anne's reign, the heir at that point was Sophia, not George in Hanover, but another woman coming from Hanover, Sophia, the electress. And so they saw this sort of prospect of female rule going on for some time and the only way a lot of people could express that anxiety was sort of by attacking Sarah and sort of scapegoating the favourite as a way to say things they couldn't say or weren't even conscious of feeling about being ruled by a woman. So I don't think we could have had you on the podcast without talking about the film The Favourite. It's a film which examines the relationship between Sarah Churchill and Anne in quite a wacky, quite a creative, quite an arty way, I suppose. And of course, the filmmakers have had to take creative licence in ways here and there. Are there any particular twists and turns the directors chose to take in this film which have changed how we might think about this historic period? Obviously, the thing about the film is that it signals very clearly in a million ways that it is fiction, which is what I sort of most like about it, that you'd have to be fairly gullible to think that this was an accurate representation of the history. So it's obviously taken massive liberties with all the little things like language and dress and dance and location, all of that kind of stuff. So leaving all of that aside, in terms of the actual plot, there's a few really basic, clear things that it invented. So the whole plot about Abigail Masham poisoning Sarah and Sarah ending up therefore unconscious in a seedy brothel That's entirely invented. (laughs) The lesbian sex scenes, I mean, there's no evidence either way of actual consummation of their relationship. So those are all added in, as it were. You know, the film makes a point of sort of removing men from the story. But the relationship between Sarah and her husband and Sidney Godolphin and other male ministers was just as important to the story Though leaving the men out is really pretty unfair to those men in terms of their roles in what actually happened. And then the other thing that is really different in the film that is quite important is that in real life, Abigail Masham owned quite a real personal debt to Sarah. Sarah was a distant relation who had adopted Abigail when Abigail was quite young back in the 1690s. And Sarah had given jobs to Abigail and all her family, put her brothers through school. Sarah claims to have even nursed Abigail back to life when she had smallpox and various things. So the fact that Abigail then does betray Sarah and start working as a sort of agent for the Tories, it was a political portrayal, but it was also a personal betrayal in that sense between the two of them. And all that back history is kind of not there in the movie. It is accurate that Sarah did attempt to blackmail the Queen with her juvenile love letters, that is true. 
But they then show Sarah sort of immediately repenting and burning them all, which, in fact, she didn't. They're all sort of sitting in the British Library, so that's not... Right? But, you know, so there's lots of factual things like that. But in a way, you know, none of that matters. I don't think any of those things, apart from the fact that it removes a bit of extra complexity in terms of the blurred lines between personal and political that were even more blurred than the film shows. But I think most of that doesn't matter. But I think there are two things in the film that I think are historically, well, no, one's historically dubious and one's biographically dubious. And they're both, I think, slightly more important, which is the historically dubious bit is about women being empowered. I mean, there's like a scene in the film where Sarah is arguing sort of directly into the face of Harley and sort of spitting at him in the face and shouting at him. And there's a kind of direct confrontation going on there that whatever power women, they did have power in those days, but the power had to be always exercised indirectly. And Sarah said that many, many times, that there was nothing she could do without doing it through men, through her husband and through Sidney Godolphin. Looking back on her life, that's what, how she assessed what she had done, recognising that everything had had to be done through others. On the one hand, it's important for people to know that women weren't always utterly oppressed and inactive for centuries before the suffragettes came along. On the other hand, it's sort of falsifying things to give the impression that they could act under their own, apart from Queen Anne, obviously, as the Queen, there was very little scope for other aristocratic women to behave in that kind of directly empowered way, if that makes sense. So from a sort of history of women's liberation, I think that's slightly problematic. And then just biographically, as, as Sarah's biographer, the other thing is that it, without wanting to give any spoilers, it does suggest that Sarah is a hero for refusing to lie to Anne. And although there are many things you can defend about Sarah, really, that wouldn't be the one. <laughs> she, you know, she really needed to learn that you have to respect people as well as be loyal to them and that sometimes a white lie is really called for. So that is, of all the ways to make her a heroine, you know, that might have been one of the things she would claim for herself, but it, it's a stodgy one to sort of claim <laughs> for why Sarah should be liked and remembered, I think, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> so in the film, it's more than implied that Anne and Sarah have a sexual relationship. Is that a complete assumption by filmmakers, or do you think there could be some historic truth in that. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The whole lesbianism angle of the film really comes from two places. One is from the fact that there was in the restoration court that these women grew up in, there was a kind of culture of very intimate same-sex relationships between the young women at court. And they did write each other what we would now read as love letters, where they would address each other as husband and wife. The nature of that culture and whether it ever slipped over into anything physical is one whole debate. So that's one thing. Then you have quite a long time later, in decades later really, you have Sarah bringing her accusations about Anne's relationship with Abigail and strongly doing more than hinting, really almost saying explicitly in a couple of places that she believes that that relationship is unnatural. She says that Anne has no inclination for any but her own sex and laying that out there. She does it in private letters, but she also commissions people to write sort of slanderous ballads about it that get sung on the street and so on. So Sarah Churchill was the person who started that fire or started the smoke, if whether or not there was a fire. When as Queen Anne of great renown, Great Britain's scepter swayed, beside the church she dearly loved, a dirty chambermaid. O oh, Abigail, that was her name, she starched and stitched full well. But how she pierced this royal heart, no mortal man can tell. However, for sweet service done, and causes of great weight, a royal mistress made her, oh, a minister of state. Her secretary she was not, because she could not write, but had the conduct and the care of some dark deeds at night. When people are sort of saying, you know, is this right or wrong when something is factually changed, one of the things I feel about that is because I've worked in sort of human rights field and also in the area of freedom of expression and things where I've worked on countries where they have been censoring or, you know, the state has been changing the official history or censoring things. And I don't agree with being a sort of 100% laissez-faire about playing around with the facts and thinking that it never matters. But I think the question that matters is whether the facts that you are playing around with or the way that you are changing the history, whether it is going to have any impact on any groups or indeed individuals, but but really thinking about how it impacts on groups of people today. And so that's why I have a slight problem with the way the favourite movie messes around with the history of female liberation, <laughs> because I think it is important for women today to understand what that history is. And in the same way, if you had a movie that, I don't know, was playing around with the history of Northern Ireland and that's still a live history or something, where the issue is still live and is still affecting people's freedoms or their own rights and things today, then that's when I think it matters what you do to the history, whether that's in fiction or non-fiction. If it's something from 400 years ago, you know, that doesn't have a huge, <laughs> any impact on politics or 
the identity or the way we treat others today or the way we treat ourselves today, then I think it matters a lot less. And I, I know that's a very fuzzy red line to draw, but to me, it is an important red line. So in terms of Queen Anne and Sarah and the general public and what we know about them, most people, I don't think, would really know who they were, despite them being clearly quite exciting, quite dramatic characters and unusually two women in the heart of politics. But they're no way near as popular as Queen Victoria or Elizabeth I. Why is that, do you think? Is that because they aren't in the school curriculum? Do we just not like that particular bit of history? Or is there simply not enough glamour or sex appeal? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I think just like Sarah Churchill is the source for some of the lesbian slanders about Queen Anne, she's also responsible for exaggerating various sort of negative qualities about Anne that have done her no favours in the history books. So Sarah depicted Anne as being quite tedious company, quite a morose person, dull and lacking sort of charisma and so on. And that has definitely stuck. I mean, I think Anne was trying to have what she called sort of wifely virtues of piety and charity and mercy and frugality and all these kinds of things which are positives, but they don't win you the same fan base as more sort of testosterone-driven traits that Queen Elizabeth I had or somebody. So I think both Anne was trying to be a certain type of character. She was trying to really, as Queen, remain silent as much as possible and just be a kind of balance, a sort of ballast between the political parties. So not to project herself too much, but just leaning one way or another in very subtle ways all the time that really don't leave a lot of trace in terms of what her impact on various decisions made during her reign actually was. It's quite hard to sort of actually put your finger on what she did that definitely made the difference when it comes to things like the Act of Union and all those kinds of things. You know, she definitely was expressing her views all the time, but doing so in quite subtle ways. And the men that she did appoint to her Privy Council and so on, Marlborough and Godolphin and things, to be fair to them, they were quite brilliant and they do deserve credit. But then the credit that is given to them has also historically always taken away from Anne. And particularly under the sort of long period of Whig history, that was the way it was written. It was always Marlborough and others who were the heroes. And Anne was almost the power behind their throne in a funny way. You say that you are a writer who happens to have published two books on historical biography. How is your approach different to professors and university academics who are publishing similar biographies? Well, I'm drawn to biography partly because of all the areas of doubt and subjectivity that it brings up, the fact that it's looking at the events from a lot of different people's point of views and comparing these different accounts of what happened. I guess you do that in history as well, but I think, yeah, I like biography and essays and fiction, things that tend to foreground the perspective that every point of view is coming from and all those elements of uncertainty about what really happened. I have enjoyed writing non-fiction historical biography, but you know, I have huge admiration for historical fiction too. And to me, I write the books because I'm interested in the ways of looking at things more than I'm interested in the actual sorting out what really happened, if that makes sense. (laughs) 
So you are obviously a non-fiction author. What do you think of historic fiction? Do you think it enhances our understanding or does it subvert it? I think it can do both. It can both enhance and vert our understanding in equal measure, really. But, I mean, when I pick up a historical novel, I pick it up because it's a good novel, not because I'm interested in that period of history. But I guess a lot of readers do buy things that way around. I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? I've been thinking a lot about some of the different kinds, because obviously there's a lot of bad historical fiction, and that's really the problem, that for all the good ones, there's I don't know what the ratio is, but there's quite a so quite a lot of quite weak do you historical mean bad fiction. In, well, just in badly written. No, just, just badly okay. written. So as as novels, there's quite a big difference between, I think, distinguishing between novels that are just set in a historical period but involve anonymous characters, and fiction that tries to use actual known characters from history and the latter using the known characters from history I think is a lot more difficult obviously in terms of making it work lightly I mean we're living right now in a period where Hilary Mantel has really shown that it can be done beautifully and I don't know whether her popularity at the moment is opening the doors for others or whether in fact it's slightly overshadowing others I I don't know there's another historical novel by Daniel Kilman that's on the booker list that I'm looking forward to reading that's sort of sitting on my desk here now, which is set during the Thirty Years' War. And, you know, so there's clearly a type of literary fiction that is historical fiction that is getting respect at the moment, which hasn't been the case for a long time or not to the same extent. Historical fiction can be so many different things, so talking about it as a whole is quite difficult. I'm quite interested in fictional biography, Things like The Master, the book about Henry James by Colm Toybean, or those kinds of versions of lives that are actually written as novels but can sometimes be incredibly insightful as well. So it's a lot of different categories. You'd have to sort of talk about each category one by one. Because you've written a book on the Kit Kat Club and also a book on Sarah Churchill, but do you think you'd ever branch out to some sort of fictional biography of any sort? Yeah, I don't feel tied down because I'm not an academic I'm not tied down to one genre I mean publishing likes to pigeonhole people so you have to be conscious of that and I think the other thing is that you know there are genre expectations people expect if you go certain types of historical fiction yes if you're going to do sort of realistic historical fiction and then people expect your details to be accurate in a historical way and things as opposed to say something like there's a novel called Viper Wine by Hermione Eyre, which is a bit like the favourite movie in terms of it is so playful that you can't mistake it for trying to be 100% historically accurate. And so, again, the way in which you're signalling to the reader whether they ought to be believing absolutely everything on the page is quite important, I think. What signals you're sending about how much people should trust you as history really varies from book to book, I think. Ophelia Field, author of The Favourite, thank you very much for talking to us. Well, thank you very much to History Hit for having me. Historical Fiction Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.